Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. So today's topic is riding the maelstrom. And I decided to talk about this because someone, well, actually many people have asked me when, and I, I am going to write the sequel to my first nonfiction, my first fiction book, which was called, it was not, I didn't think of it as a novel. It's called An Allegory, and the title is Diana Herself. And if you haven't read it, it's about a woman and a pig and their adventures. That's all I'm going to say. But um, the point is, it's actually an allegory. And I'm going to tell you why I why I wrote that book, or well, at least one of the main reasons I wrote it, and why I decided to make it a trilogy. So I am not a person who goes to psychics. Twice in my life have I gone to a psychic. The first one, maybe more, but only two were any good. (laughs) So maybe I've run into a few along the way. But the first one I was writing, um, Finding Your Own North Star, which was my first self-help book. And I hated it. I hated the book. I thought it was stupid. I thought everybody already knew it. And I was like, oh, I want to please my editor so much, but I'm so bad at this. So I was stalling and procrastinating and I walked into the office of uh, someone at the TV station where I was working, gave me a a free session with her psychic. So in I went all excited to hear about other things. And I sat down and the psychic looked across at me and his eyes widened and he said, you have a book to write. (laughs) And he was like, yes, there are many like impulses coming from the realm of whatever that say, get off your ass and write that damn book. And I was like, that was the last thing I wanted to hear, but it got me through it, helped get me through it. So then many, many years later, I wasn't writing anything. I was sick of self-help. I was, I didn't, couldn't think of anything new to write. And so I just moved to the woods in California and was just going to run and be with the bears all the time, which I did a fair amount of. But someone gave me a recession with a psychic when I moved to California, too, So, because it was my birthday. So I got on with this psychic, and he said, you just bought a property with, um, uh, what did he call it, a shrine on it. And I was like, really? The property I bought in California, then I remembered there was a shrine to a horse on the property, a little kind of concrete altar. They buried him in the forest, this horse. And it was this very sweet little shrine. I said, oh, you're right. And he said, the property wants a labyrinth on it. And I was like, well, that is an interesting thing to say, because right now, I don't know how you would know this. I don't know how anybody would have known this. Um, Chris Brandt, my wonderful colleague and coach, is also a labyrinth maker and a labyrinth walker. And she was out at that very moment building a labyrinth on the property. I said, well, it just so happens, sir, that I, I do have a labyrinth coming along. And he said, really? He said, I thought that had to be a metaphor. I just, I, okay. Well, then I started to pay attention to him because it it actually, two things. One was that he nailed the labyrinth and the shrine. And the, the other thing was that he was surprised by his own correctness. And that always, for some reason, gives me confidence in a person. So I said to him, go, tell me what to do not something you should do very often. I don't recommend it, but sometimes it's fun. And he said, well, you have to write a book. And I was like, not another freaking book. I'm sick of writing books. Do you know how hard it is? Do you know how hard it is to like 
the whole thing is hard. And he said, no, 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 no. It's going to be fun. It's going to be simple. It's going to be three parts. One is about the transformation of the divine feminine or the awakening of the divine feminine, then about the awakening of the divine masculine, and then one about how they get together and save the world. And I was like, well, that actually does sound like it's, that would be interesting. That would be right up my alley. So I was going to write this little simple, weird allegory, like 50 pages long that did the whole thing. <laughs> and I started to write about the awakening of the divine feminine. And I was tracking around my property and um, and out into the woods way beyond my property. And um, I started tracking a wild boar. There are wild boars in California because they were brought by Russian people who wanted to hunt them and they got away and they bred and there are wild boars in California. So I was tracking this boar and we got into a kind of interesting relationship where I think he knew I was tracking him or her. I think it was a him, but it could have been her. And I started to have conversations in my head with this boar. And out of that, I started to write the part about the awakening of the divine feminine, because I knew one thing. I knew that a pig raised on a farm, pigs are the only animals I know of, where if a domestic farm raised pig gets out and goes into the woods to live, they're very, very smart. So they often survive, they can eat anything. And they will revert back to their wild state. In other words, a pink little pig, well, big pig, in a cage, in a farm, who gets out and goes into the woods will start to get very coarse bristles, will grow tusks, will start to get like a little mane. I mean, they get, they get very wild looking. And I thought, this is what the divine feminine needs. It needs to be rewilded, or as I came to call it in the book, bewildered. So to get bewildered, you have to be bewildered. They're the same thing. You confuse the notions that culture has taught you. And in the case of women, and I made sure it was a woman who was brown, and she was the average of all the women in the world. So she was the most devalued of all humans in society. Females are considered less valuable than males in almost every culture. And as we all know, racism is a worldwide scourge. So um, she started out in a really difficult place, but she got out into the wild and she got bewildered um, and she ran into her mentor out in the woods, this, this talking boar. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. And then I painted the cover. And it, the I couldn't get anyone to publish it. Nobody was, I didn't even ask anyone to publish it because the people that did see it, my agent took it around to them and they were like, oh no, 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 no no, go back to self-help. And I was like, I will not. So I just published it myself. And that meant that I could do the cover and I could do the editing and it made me happy. So some of you have read it. A lot of people have read it. A surprising number of people have read it. And they've been asking me, what about the second book? And I said, I am on it. And I started writing a book about a man, because this is about the divine masculine, who lives in New York City, because it has to be the most built up place in the world. And I, I don't want to give you any spoilers. The plot is still in my head. But a big part of the plot driver was that he would be in Manhattan, living and working in Manhattan, when a plague struck and devastated Manhattan. So Manhattan would become the center point of the ground zero of the pandemic. And then it happened. I mean, I don't know who the dude was. If he's, if he's a real dude, but my, uh, the, my whole plot, like that I'd been thinking about for two years 
happened in real life. I moved to this area partly because I knew the second book had to happen here. Now, this is a book that I am writing only because once a psychic suggested it <laughs> and then I wrote one version. But it's very odd how the things that I were I was writing about seemed to is true with the first book, too. They started to happen in real life in this case after. So what happened is it kind of stalled me. I was like, well, damn, this thing's writing itself. Like, how am I going to writing about a plague right now in the middle of COVID is complex. Like, I don't know where it's going. I don't. Yeah. Ugh. So I kind of stalled out and I wrote another book and I'm you know happy with that. But I did paint the cover. That's the cover of the next book. And one thing I will tell you about the second book in any trilogy, and that is that the second book or the second movie is always a downbeat. You know how you've got Star Wars and then the Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars is like, doo, 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 everybody gets a medal at the end. And then the Empire Strikes Back. It's like, oh, oh, no, here comes the emperor and he's in charge and the empire is ooh, very gnarly. And everybody's kind of like, ah, at the end, it's like, oh, things aren't great. We're still alive, but okay, not good. And then, of course, Return of the Jedi, ba-doom, that's where everything works out right. So that's just the time out of mind. That has been the format of trilogies. And I, I aim to just hang right in there. I like a structure. So the second book, which is about the enlightenment of the divine, of the masculine, was is the downbeat book it's the one where things go a little gnarly a lot gnarly actually and a friend suggested that i use the title maelstrom which is very clever because it is both about what happens when everything gets jumbled up there's a maelstrom maelstroms are like whirlpools in the ocean and they're very very scary but also a very quick rearrangement of the letters turns it into male storm so that it's the the storming of the masculine, the citadel of the patriarchy, basically. So uh, I promised I would talk about it because people have been asking about it today. And then a couple of interesting things happened. One thing was that night before last, or maybe the night before, um, we had a tornado warning in our area. This is the second tornado alert that we've had since I got here. And all the Pennsylvanians around me are going, this is not, we don't do tornadoes. I don't know what's happening here. Global weirding, climate change, we now get tornadoes in Pennsylvania. So it wasn't a bad thing for, for us in our house. We just, we got an alert. We went down to the basement. We tried to like reassure Adam who gets a little concerned. Then we all went to bed. Then we had to get up it because it came again. And we went down to the basement again. Then we got, we went back, went to sleep. In the morning, everything's fine for us. Then we find out that everything in our neighborhood has been like trashed by incredible flooding. People have died. People have died in New York in basement apartments that flooded. And a tornado touched down on our street, like a mile from our house, which is weird. You know, to this is not what I expected when I moved to rural Pennsylvania, but it is the same as a maelstrom because a maelstrom is a vortex, a spiral of, of energy, wind twisting very quickly. A maelstrom in the ocean is a spiral of water twisting very quickly. 
And in both cases, they're very dangerous because they suck things into them and they cause a lot of mayhem. Um, in fact, that's how uh, W.B. Yeats starts his poem, The Second Coming, one of the most depressing poems ever written, but really, really well worded. You should definitely read it. But it starts out turning and turning in its widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, surely some revelation is at hand, surely some second coming. And then he talks about, Yeats describes some hideous monster that's being born. Or no, it's not being born, but it's, it's like heaving itself out of the evil spaces and slouching toward Bethlehem to be born. Like it's a downer of a poem, okay? And it's about a maelstrom. And maelstroms happen, maelstroms are vortices, they're vortexes. And if you, I don't know why, but new age people are really into vortexes as well. Vortices is the proper plural. But um, I remember when I lived in Arizona going to Sedona and they'd say, go out and, and go visit the vortices, the vortexes. And I went out and there were canyons and I was like, all right. <laughs> Um, what's a vortex? I thought I heard one once, but it turned out to be a car going over a cattle guard. Huh. But what the New Agers told me was that in places where the air gets turned into a vortex, these are centers of spiritual energy because things emerge from vortices, from like they're sucked up and into the world, and they're also pulled down in. So this it's the point of turning as things go inward and also explode outward. And the whole universe, this universe loves a vortex. You've probably seen the solar system shown as, as a bunch of circles. Well, they are a bunch of planets orbiting the sun, but they're also moving linearly through space. So what you're really seeing is a vortex playing out. And um, there's a vortex every time you brush your teeth, every time you, um, every time you empty the bathtub, but you can't go down the drain, so don't be worried. So the fact is that we're surrounded by vortices and they can be seen as either profoundly destructive or profoundly creative. And if you look at the news right now, it looks like Yates' second coming. I watched the, the news on Afghanistan and it just, I just wept. And I thought about this place um, where they do falconry still. And I thought, turning and turning in its widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. And then I thought, long time ago, when I first met Ro, the gracious badger, my partner in life and work, she wrote this poem called The Turning. And before she wrote it, or well, before she ever let me read it, she, she told me once she had this, this strange image that kept occurring to her and it was a bird flying with its wings outstretched. And then every so, ever so slightly it began to turn. And she said, I feel like the turning has begun. And this was six years ago. And I started to think about Yeats's poem. And I thought, here's the poetry of a man who is like at the apex of like white male dominion over the globe. And it's really interesting that the image he uses is that a wild bird that has been subdued and tamed and trained can't hear the man screaming to it. <laughs> like falcons do just fine on their own. <laughs> they don't cause mere anarchy, but it's almost like if we can't control that wild bird, 
if someone isn't screaming to that wild bird and getting it to do what it, it's supposed to do, the turning gets completely out of control, turning and turning in the widening gyre, turning and turning, and then Rose Poem, the turning. And I thought, oh, it's turning. The, the whole tide of history is turning away from the dominion of the human patriarchies and it's going back to something different. I don't know what it is. This man here is walking into, I don't know what, but it's very bright. It's very shiny because here's what I think. I think we're in the middle of a maelstrom and I think you may be in the middle of a maelstrom yourself. And here are the things to do when everything is turning and everything is spinning and you can't get control. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Here's what to do. Realize that in comparison with the power of a maelstrom, you have no individual power. So stop trying. If you get caught in a wave, for example, in the ocean, uh, my friend uh, Susan Casey wrote an incredible book called The Wave about wave dynamics in the ocean and big wave surfing. And one of the things she talks about is these guys who surf hundred foot waves, just unimaginable power. When they get dumped into a wave, I mean, it's not like normal, like it's going to, flat out kill you if you're not superhuman. And these guys pretty much are. But the first thing they do when they get dumped and they're, you know, however many hundred feet underwater with all this commotion around them is they relax completely. They slow their heartbeats. And the whole time they're being tossed around like ragdolls, they don't even try to resist. That's the way to get hurt. So they just get really calm and relaxed because they know eventually the turbulence of the water is going to spit them out somewhere. If it spits them out underwater before they get a chance to take a breath, they'll die. But that's that's the bet they take. But they have an almost reverent relationship with this experience because they really are coming that close to death. And the, at that moment, the challenge is to give up control. And we've talked about this over and over on The Gathering Room, that the way to the awakened state in the brain is to give up sense of self and give up sense of control. So you surrender to the chaos. You get the terrible diagnosis. You surrender to what happens next. Um, you, the news is terrifying. You surrender to what's happening out there. Uh, you, 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 get, you have a panic attack. You surrender to the panic attack and tell yourself, it's a panic attack. I'm going to watch it. So the second thing after relax, 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 and let go of control is um, watch. Like once you've realized that there's nothing you can do and you get calm, you can also be fascinated by the way things are going apparently to hell in a handbasket. But really, they're just in a vortex of destruction and creation. And we're always in a vortex of destruction and creation. There's always something disappearing into the vortex of destruction into the past. And there's always something being born anew you know, thrown out of the vortex, you know, how things get thrown off the edges of tornadoes. So basically, that's what I'm going to write my second allegory about, about a time when everything's falling apart, the center cannot hold, and the wild falcon begins the turning and turns and turns, but there is no anarchy. There is a loss of control by the mind, the left hemisphere mind of humans, and there is a surrender to the process of nature and to the process of history and to the process of spirit, what spirit wants to do on this planet.
through us, with us. And there is nothing we can do but relax, watch. And every time you get a chance to just stop and take a breath, breathe. So that's what I have to say about that. And I hope it's not too much of a downer. I think it's kind of exciting because we're going into the vortex, but the vortex is taking care of us. So to me, it's like the best thing that could possibly happen. So let's go to your questions. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. Um, Susanna said, how would the character in your new book handle all of the political madness that is going on in Texas right now? It really is when, sorry if you're a Yates lover and you don't like my interpretation of, of of the second coming, but whenever there's a threat to the falcon being controlled by the falconer and the wild in in all of western literature and philosophy the feminine has been associated with wildness and the masculine has been associated with structure and building and control so whenever there's a threat of the wild of wild nature starting to spin culture and starting to fragment it and and have it fly away the reaction of the control side of humans is to crack down on it. And this is the dark side of the masculine power, which all of us have within us. It's not, I'm not saying that men are all bad, but um, you can really see a gender split in what's going on in Texas right now. And you can see a certain type of, of uh, masculine wanting to control a certain aspect of the feminine. And I think it is it's it's very much an illustration of this dynamic in the world right now. And it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying to watch what's going on unless I realize, oh, it's turning the turning. No wonder the falconer is screaming at the falcon. And the falcon in the end is not connected. It's going to fly away, right? When it loses touch with the falconer, it's just going to go have its life. And the falconer might, might be stomping around going, I need control of that bird. But the bird's going to be fine. And so will nature. So will the man if he just stops thinking he needs to control falcons. Okay, so Donna says, do you think the maelstrom is the uniting force of the transformation of consciousness? I think that the, the, the place where maelstroms form is, for example, at the equator where Um, water spins counterclockwise in the Northern Hemisphere and clockwise in the Southern Hemisphere. And when you get these different currents that are turning in those directions and they hit each other, at the point of turning where the two forces that are turning in opposite directions conflict with each other, you get these spins. And what I think happens there is kind of, it's probably what happens in a black hole. Things get pulled in and obliterated, but also we don't know We know that information can't be destroyed, so it has to be emerging. I mean, some I I agree with the physicists who think it's exploding outward into new universes and creating um, a whole new 
whole new universe out of um, the the dark whirlpool that looks like it's sucking everything to annihilation. It's actually a form of creation as well. So would I say it's the uniting force? No, it's the maelstrom force. It's the it's the turning of all the tides of history. It is a massive shift in everyone's life and in the life of, of humanity collectively. And I hope in the lives of all the other beings on the planet too. I hope it puts things back the way wildness wants them. So I would say it's less uniting than, it is uniting to be going through it together, but only if we communicate well. It's just, you can choose. Are you gonna let it rip you apart and divide you? Or are you going to let yourself be transformed by relaxing control? So um, wrote, I'm getting a lot of screenshots, but they just say screenshot. So I am going over to some of the questions that have come in on the chat. Okay. Um, Florence says, oh, great. Thank you. Ah, okay. So Christine says tips for letting go of the desire to control. Um, yeah, just notice that it never, ever, but never works. And that it just leaves you going, I mean, whatever you've tried, if you've tried to control an addiction, if you've tried to control your body, if you've tried to control your thoughts for any length of time, you know, it's hopeless. We have so little control until we go and realize that it's, it's, as they say in Zen, don't push the river. It runs by itself. I would say, don't push the whirlpool. Don't push the maelstrom. It twists by itself. If you just um, get frustrated enough and then feel how relaxing it is to finally let go. Okay. So here is the key one word. And I've talked about this a lot too. Trust. Go deep, deep down in your own cells. I like to imagine, you know, the, the electrons orbiting the, the nuclei of all your molecules are doing the same dance that the planets are doing around the sun and they're moving as well. So they're doing their own little vortex dance. And I look, like to look down infinitely deeply and see that from my molecules on out, and when I say I see it, I just it just becomes clear. Everything is at peace and everything is well-ordered. And I don't need to worry. My little flash of life in this body is being very gently and delicately handled. Is that true? I don't know, but I trust it. And for that reason, I have a joyful life. And when I didn't trust it, I lived in hell. And the only sh thing that shifted was my mind. So I would say trust one word. So Florence said, I can surrender, but it seems to cost me joy. The only thing that will cost you your joy is attachment. So if you're attached to something, like um, today, Ro and I went down to record a podcast. But then we got some difficult news right before the podcast. And we tried and the energy wasn't there. And I was just like, we can't do it right now. And Rose said, oh, I thought you'd be mad that we aren't going to do it. But I was like, no, I really wanted to do it. But I know that attachment to something only makes me unhappy because I can't control anything. I couldn't control us having a, a weird text that made us feel bad for a minute. So instead, you just surrender as quickly as you can. And what happens next is the thing you thought you were going to do goes... And then you say, okay, what happens next? And that's the point where you watch. So we stopped trying to podcast 
and we went upstairs and started Googling things online. And that's what happened next. And it was wonderful. And anytime I've lost something, including horrible losses that felt horrible to me at the time, like losing the idea that my son would not have Down syndrome, losing that normal baby I'd hoped for. Um, it's not always that easy, but the less attached you are and the more you let go and then watch, the more of what comes, like my beautiful, perfect son, is the answer to all your prayers and is more wonderful than you could imagine. Uh, I have a couple more, so I'm going to go a little over time. Kate says, what's the ETA on the transformation? I'm ready for the left brain to go on vacay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, since this is completely bizarro anyway, the third book, I'm not going to tell you anything about, but I will tell you that I think the timeline is about five years from now. And that's, it's a fantasy allegory, okay? I am not saying I know anything, but a very, very distinct timeline emerged in my head. And it was like about five years from now, um, the, the third stage comes where everything, where the cavalry rides over the hill and things, male and female together save the earth. So why not believe it? It'll keep you happy for a while. And then Mary James says, uh, my 14-year-old son wants me to be more politically active, but I just want to surrender. Questioning how much I should be shouting and raising my fist. Am I not standing up for what's important? Such a great question. If you're really surrendered, then when it's time for you to take a political stance, surrender, will you'll find yourself doing it. So that's for me um, when I wrote my memoir, Leaving the Saints, about Mormonism and how I think child sexual abuse is rampant. And I think it's a very patriarchal um, and psychologically destructive uh, institution in some ways. That was a political act for sure. And I got in a ton of trouble for doing it, but I, it had, to, I couldn't, I was resisting as hard as I could for 10 years. I resisted writing that and then it just had to happen. So when I stopped controlling, it just happened. So if we're surrendered, you guys, here's the thing. It's not mere anarchy. It's the falcon. The falconer might be running around going, here's what you have to do. And you'll be like, no, I'm going to turn on my own wings. And I see you, little falconer, and I love you. And if you could just let go of me a bit, we could be friends. But I'm not really going to do what you say anymore because I'm wild. And the world is meant to be wild. And the gyres are not destruction. They are creation. And they're the dance of, of matter into and out of form. And it's all joy if you stop trying to control the universe. So thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening to my weird gathering room today. It was really fun to play with my own little mental toys in front of y'all. And thank you for joining me. And have a wonderful week. Mwah, 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 mwah. Till I see you again on The Gathering Room. Thanks for being here. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. 
Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, A few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025. But I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star.